Thanks for joining us for Life Solved. I'm John Worsey, and here at the University of Portsmouth, we work on sharing amazing research, breakthroughs, and cutting-edge science with the world. Much of our research is informing and exploring the way we live today, including our cultures and society. This time, we're catching up with some brilliant researchers on how attitudes, ideas, and behavior are being experienced, shared, and perpetuated through one of our nation's most beloved pastimes. Historical references to football in England go as far back as the 14th and 15th centuries. But today, it occupies a global industry worth around $1.8 billion. It's at the heart of the way billions of people socialize, share experiences and celebrate. In the first of this two-part special, we'll ask what the function is of football in creating and sharing culture. How are harmful cultures impacting the health of individuals and the game? And how can we make football fair for everyone? That's the whole point of, of academia, to be able to create and share knowledge that can then impact the societies that we, we live in and in the areas that we do research in. Let's meet Dr. Tom Webb and Dr. Beth Clarkson. They're both looking at how values in our sporting world play out in wider society. My name is Dr. Beth Clarkson. I'm a senior lecturer in sport management at the University of Portsmouth. My background is in sport coaching. I've worked in elite youth football as a coach for over 10 years. I deliver education programmes for the, the Premier League and also a, a women's football policy advisor for Fair Cane UK, which is a group of football clubs who are striving for change in the game, driven by sustainability and by fairness and success. My research interests are, are grounded and fed by that applied experience, so predominantly centres on quality, diversity and inclusion in coaching and management also governance of women's sport that started with a focus on women's football, but is beginning to, to branch out into other sports such as rugby, cricket and uh, golf. I'm Dr Tom Webb, uh, Senior Lecturer in Sport Management at the University of Portsmouth. My research is all around sports officials from different backgrounds, different sports, different countries. My research takes a global approach to look at some of the challenges, issues and problems which exist within officiating. Beth's passion for promoting equality and diversity in sport was born of her experiences playing youth football. Football led her into leadership roles and eventually her PhD. So it goes all the way back to the power that, that football can have in terms of developing people, but also maybe the social power that it has to help inclusion and, and people's development. Football is, is kind of an ecosystem. It's made up of so many people and it, it really does broadly connect people either at the time or later in years to come or, or people that you might not know very well, but you know, through football and, and you, you always find you come across people in, in different ways. So the sport has certainly been kind to me and, and sometimes the more you invest in it, sometimes the more you get out of it. Beth thinks that football has made enormous strides in providing equal opportunities in recent times. But she says more needs to be done to make it a fair game. 
we probably need to recognise that historically football has not necessarily been an inclusive sport. It was developed for and by white working class men. And that's led in the past to people outside of that, that group not feeling particularly welcome or to, to be able to, to participate in the sport. But attitudes and behaviours have certainly changed somewhat since then. And in some cases, are certainly much more progressive, although some of the, the research that we've done has uncovered that there needs to be more progress that we need to make. Football associations and, and governing bodies have put into place lots of different initiatives to try and make sure that football is more inclusive, whether that's through placement opportunities for coaches from different ethnic backgrounds or through better funding for women's and girls' football the Premier League have got Rainbow Laces campaign to help tackle homophobia. Multiple professional football clubs have LGBT supporter groups now. It's not exhaustive of, of everything that goes on in football to try and promote inclusivity. And I probably should note that, that all of those initiatives and others certainly have their limitations and racism, homophobia and, and sexism have not gone from the sport. But constantly developing and improving the support that's in place for people from different backgrounds. Given the role that football plays in our country, it's, it's our national sport, it's certainly a, a mirror for our society. There's certainly a role that the sport can play in developing inclusivity and, and broadly more equality and, and diversity within our communities. And Beth's point about this interplay between sporting norms and wider society is backed up in other research. Tom Webb has been exploring different cultural relationships with authority and how this translates to the experience of match officials. When we started looking across sports and countries, I think you you have to try and understand the impact of culture and, and, and also the historical development, both within sport in that country, but also in wider society. So a good example of that is something like how referees are treated in sort of Latin Europe. So if we like, if we look at like Italy, for example, there's a distrust of, of authority in, a, in Italian culture. And there are reasons for that. You know, you can look back at the rise of fascism in Italy and some of the, the impacts of that on wider society. And so generally people don't like being told what to do. And in particular with referees, when they look at the referee as an authority figure, it's something that they automatically almost distrust. So the referees, the research we did with those referees, they were talking about how any errors are their fault. And if you look at like the culture in the UK, it's very different. But we've had different historical challenges and developments that have affected how we might behave as a society and how we might treat some of those officials. Now, in the UK and England in particular, it this this culture of abuse has sort of become almost ingrained within football and as I say, like an accepted part of the game. Tom's been looking closely at the mental health impacts of the game on referees. He explains more. If you think about any sport, you have like four groups of stakeholders really. You have the players, the coaches, the spectators, and then you have the officials. And what tends to happen, and certainly what's happened historically, is that the, the referees or the officials are the group that come last and they get less of the funding, they get less of the attention and sort of they're almost like an afterthought if you like. Referees only professionalised in 2001. So if you think about the gap in terms of uh, where players have had the training, the focus, the development over that period of time, 
referees were doing it part-time. It was an additional job. They were doing other jobs. They were fitting it in and around their work, if you like, even at the top level. And, and referee abuse is a, is a major issue in, in countries and, and sports around the world. So fo- football has particular challenges, particularly in, in the UK, I think it's fair to say. But even in other countries, we, we've conducted research in other countries with different FAs and some of the trends cross into other countries and other cultures as well. Referee abuse exists at, at all levels. If verbal abuse exists, it's quite easy for it to escalate. And we found that actually in, in England, the respondents to, to one of our pieces of research, the referees were saying that one in five of them that responded had had some form of physical abuse. Why should someone in their workplace, because they're getting paid more often than not, it's a workplace, why should they suffer abuse? Why should they be subjected to the verbal and physical abuse that they encounter. Of course, it has a knock-on effect in terms of participation rates. If there are no referees, then it affects how many people can play the game. But it also means that referees start walking away and discontinuing as well. And that's something that's happened, you know, considerably over the last few years. If a culture of abuse is allowed to normalise in football on any level, the negative impacts are already evident. Mental health consequences for individuals, and a severe impact on the sport and the opportunities it can present for people to develop and succeed. It's something that Beth's research has picked up on too. We've just submitted a paper for publication that has explored some of the lived experiences of women football coaches from ethnically diverse backgrounds and some of the challenges that that they face in being part of the the coaching profession, but also existing within football culture. And there are some really stark inequalities that they feel that certainly don't necessarily make a career particularly appealing to some. They certainly have to be thick-skinned and able to deal with acts against them that I suppose similar to, to sports officials can be quite damaging and affect them in terms of personally, in terms of their their empowerment and confidence, but also in terms of interpersonally and some of the relationships that they have with people that they work with within their clubs and other coaches and officials and people higher up in sort of governance structures. Effectively, what we're talking about are quite often marginalised groups. And officials in most sports are often marginalised. We actually did a study uh, which was published last year which looked at female sports officials in, in football in particular. You're probably not surprised to know that there's very few pieces of research which, which look at female officials. A lot of the research that's been done are, is on white males, you know. And I think sometimes with if I, if I take officiating, some of the challenges that are faced by male, by female officials, by LGBT, you know, these different groups, they can actually be outside of officiating. It can be from like players, can be from coaches and the whole structure around that makes it really difficult for referees within those environments. You know, do players understand when they behave in a certain way, what what that does to, you know, the official, uh, particularly if it's a female official or, or you know, a female official officiating a male game and, and how does that make them feel? isolated is a starting point but probably quite intimidated probably feeling like they're in a masculine dominated sport and environment and they don't feel comfortable and certainly the research 
we did. That, that was what we found in, in football. It was still a male-dominated, masculine environment for female officials and, and one that they felt wasn't really conducive to them developing. There's definitely a crossover in, in some of the stuff that Beth and I do, and we've, we've done some stuff together over the last year or so. I'd no doubt there'll be more because there are, there are some of the barriers and issues do cross over. So what kind of approach is needed to challenge inequalities and create genuinely inviting spaces for everyone in football? Tom and Beth swapped a few ideas. Part of the challenge is certainly bringing together different people who are working in these spaces and all have the, the mindset to make change. And it's about making informed change as well. So part of the difficulty of that is people working in silos. So academics need to be working with people working in policy, also working in decision making, also working operationally with enacting some of those policy changes or trying to, to develop initiatives within their clubs or with a particular workforce. And so we really need to be all working together. Part of sometimes initiatives, and not to speak specifically about any of the ones that I mentioned previously, but just some of the challenges with those initiatives is whether they're informed by the people that they're meant to be affecting. And so that's really where research can really help by you know, utilising contacts, networks, etc., to really be able to bring those voices together, certainly in the research that, that Tom did last year and that I've been doing as well, that bringing those people together, giving them a platform to be able to speak on some of these issues, bring them to the forefront in, a, in an anonymized way, which means people can be more, more candid without fear of, of reprisal against that. And then that information is key to working out what change is needed. For a football that's forward-facing, collaborative and active in seeking out the voices and opinions of those it seeks to represent. It sounds like there's much work to be done. Research like Tom and Beth's has a huge role to play in driving that vision forward. The pandemic also had a significant impact on equality in sports, as in many parts of society. Beth explained how research the team has carried out shows how women's football has been hampered by institutional actions taken at the higher level exacerbating inequality. Sport is really a crucial, it's interwoven aspect of our society. And so as a result of that, these elite sports from a women's perspective have been adversely affected by the societal changes, um, but also what's happened within different sports. And certainly it faces a, an existential threat because of that. Men's sport has been prioritised and there are financial reasons for that, but has certainly exacerbated the, the inequalities between men's and, and women's sport in terms of the way that they are, are broadcast, that they're spoken about within the media, in some instances, in the way that they're funded. An example of that was that in the first lockdown, there were sportswomen who had to take to social media to source equipment because they weren't provided any in a way that some of their male counterparts within the same organisations didn't necessarily have those particular challenges. Working with Christina Filippu, who we'll hear from next time, Beth and Tom are about to release research on financial sustainability in women's football. 
the findings from that have really highlighted the the need to consider what the the long-term sustainable plan is to address some of those issues, particularly things like short-term low-value pair contracts. So there need to be some equitable solutions that really recognise the growing value that that women's sport has, that long-term sustainability is is key to that because the pandemic is a long-term issue now. And so being mindful of that, but also still making inroads into inclusivity, but also on top of that, really harnessing the growth area and potential of the sport. Next time, we'll be hearing more from Beth and Tom's colleagues at the University of Portsmouth. Join us as we look more deeply into the systemic financial and economic issues around football and ask whether the anti-corruption steps are enough to make it a fair game for all. If a club goes into administration and their wages don't get paid, that is a problem. You can find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth at port.ac.uk slash research and find links to all the research we've mentioned there. If you've found this episode thought-provoking, we'd love to hear from you. Share it on social media with the hashtag LifeSolved or perhaps just send it to a friend. And if you have a moment, please do rate, review and follow this podcast on your app so that more people like you can join the conversation. See you again next time.